Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hegelbunt on Twitter, and I have with me today uh, the developer of, or one of the developers of um, uh, Falcon Age, uh, the upcoming game from Outer Loop Games, uh, Chandana Ekanayake, and uh, I will be calling you Eka uh, as the show goes. Eka, welcome to the show. That was a beautiful pronunciation, by the way. Oh, Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, I was like, that was my Olympics today. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you. thanks so much for being here. Um, I've been doing this with, with most of the devs who have been on the show recently, uh, just because I think it, you do it better than I do. Um, can you sort of describe your work? How do you, how would you describe your work if like um, you know thinking of it in terms of like a uh, I don't know an artist statement or just like a philosophy? Is there any sort of way that you would talk about your game design? Uh, oh yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in terms of what, you know, I've been in games for a long time, and that's that sort of philosophy's changed over the years. Okay. For me right now, you know, things with outer, starting Outer Loop and Falcon Age is really trying to tell stories that we don't hear too much of in the Western games market. Great. In terms of characters and places and things like that. So. Um, actually, can you talk about your history in gaming? I mean, I know we're, we'll definitely get to Falcon Age, and mm -hmm. I want to talk about definitely the the way that you see this telling a story that is not uh, being told. But mm -hmm. uh, when did you start in game? Let's like, what, what is your, what is your journey kind of look like? Um, I started at Bethesda. It was called Bethesda Softworks with it, which is essentially Bethesda games right right okay. now at, uh, at about 19. Okay. Um, cool. Before that, uh, it was, you know, by chance and by luck, but before that uh, I was going to art school in Savannah, uh, Savannah, Georgia. SCAD. Oh, okay. We were a SCAD. Yeah. It didn't last long. Uh, ran out of money. Came back home to... Mar I grew up in Maryland, right where Bethesda is. <laughs> uh, you know, I... This is, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I never realized that Bethesda, Bethesda Studios was in Bethesda, Maryland. Well, it like, was. I just assumed it couldn't be, but yeah, that's yeah. Funny. I mean, at that point, Bethesda was like, I think, 15 years old. It was in Bethesda, then it moved to Rockville, which is still where the main office is. Okay. Uh, nearby there. Um, so I... I was I started with a startup out of a house with some friends who were going through architecture school into the DC area. Okay. Um, 
1996, so a long time ago. Um, you know, I mean, sort of getting into game industry. I knew, you know, I grew up playing games, so I, I, and I, I hear this a lot, which was just like the idea that people actually make games and as a thing you can do was not really a, a thing I thought about. I mean, I knew okay. somebody made it, but um, so anyway, I, I was helping some friends doing architecture renderings and, and I learned, like taught, us, taught myself how to do uh, Photoshop and all these digital tools because I, I was a traditional artist. Um, and then we started doing contract work locally and Bethesda was one of our clients. We were super cheap and hungry. Uh, they hired us to do some cutscene work for a game called Red Guard, which uh, came before, um, you know, Oblivion and, and Morrowind and things like that. Okay. That was a PC title. Yeah. And they, they ended up hiring us in-house. So it was five of us. We essentially moved over to Bethesda as, you know, artists and animators and... From that on, I uh, worked on Red Guard, Battlespire, and then Morrowind was the last thing I worked on there. Cool. Wow. Uh, yeah. What did, did you do on, uh, I, I'm only asking this, and not because I'm actually fascinated by Red Guard, because yeah. that's, that's like one of those old uh, old titles that never gets talked about, but it's such, yeah. a, such a foundational one. But um, yeah. I know there's a ton of people who listen that love Morrowind. What did you, what did you do on Morrowind? Um, so I started as an artist and cinematic artist, so for Morrowind, I did a bunch of character work, did marketing cool. art, did cover stuff, did UI, did, I mean, it was a small team back then, mm -hmm. so, um, a bunch of things, um, yeah, it was a big learning, hats. yeah, mini hats, <laughs> and then, um, then we opened up a, there was a West Coast office that opened up, and I ended up moving out there, and that's how I got to the, got to California and LA, um. Uh, from there, I left Bethesda, went to Shiny Entertainment, which isn't around anymore. Okay. Uh, they're probably famous for Earthworm Jim, Dave Perry, uh, a lot of those games. And then uh, we were working on the Matrix game for PlayStation 2, which came out oh. which came out with the movie, or the sequels. Is that, um, not, not, the, not Enter the Matrix. Yep, but... Enter the Matrix. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. All right, another game that uh, people have talked about like glowingly on this show. Really? Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> Some, there was I, I forget what episode it was, but there was one episode where the person was just like, Yeah, like Enter the Matrix was like a super important game for me and they just like went on about it. I've never gotten the chance to play it, but like oh, they were they were glowing about it. Wow. All I remember is a whole lot of crunch. <laughs> I because bet. we had to get the game done for day and date release of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah, that sounds it's, brutal. Yeah, I mean that was after that. I was like, I don't think I ever want to do a licensed game. But you know, the licensed game stuff these days are very different than it was back then. Well, yeah, I mean, there seems to yeah. be like Enter the Matrix seems to be like the last game that because that came out around. Did that come out around the same time the uh, the um, oh, what is that the the Butcher Bay the um, Oh yeah, no, that was amazing, man. Like, yeah, wasn't yeah. There, there like it was that one, and then I heard good things about Enter the Matrix. Like there seemed like a period of time where like there was a shift in licensed games that began to, like, they actually began to be taken seriously as games, which was yeah. um, kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, the thing with that, I, I did a, I did about 60, 70 characters on that game and a bunch of UI and a bunch of, okay. you know, trailer stuff and art direction and level stuff. It was, you know, it's a bunch of stuff, again. That's sort of been my career. has been working on multiple things. Um, for that game, it was it was really interesting because we had access to like all the set photos and you oh, know cool. hung out with the Wachowskis and so that was like that was really neat for me because obviously I was a huge fan of the Matrix before that. Um, 
So yeah, we had 3D scans of all the characters, and and that was a lot of my job was getting converting that stuff to, into character models in the game and making it run on a PlayStation. Um, nice. It was really interesting, but it was it was tough because there was a lot of. I mean, I, I think by the time we had Shiny was owned by Interplay, and then Shiny was sold to Atari in the middle of the Matrix. Oh boy. Game development, and then you know, like working on a title like that, you had layers of. Uh, approval, right? So, like, we have a deadline of getting this stuff done. You have to send it to our people at Atari and the producers at um, the Wachowski's company, and then the producers of WB. And you know, by the time uh, like yeah. anything anything has to happen quickly in games, it would take weeks, right? So it's so by the end of it, I think all of Atari Studios that they owned at the time helped ship um, into the Matrix. So we hit our, <laughs> That's <laughs> hit our wild. Team. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, with such a hard deadline, too. I mean, you're yeah. not even. You're just. You're. Oh, man, that sounds intense. And then, yeah. did you sort of transition into, like, sort of uh, your own more proprietary stuff? Then, did you stay with AAA games at that point? Oh, uh, so that, and then after that, um, we did another project called Path of Neo. Okay. Which was with the Wachowskis again, and taking all three movies and making a. Uh, it wasn't tied to any movie, but it was, you know, they did they did some writing on it, and I did, we had this crazy cutscene. I'm sure if people uh, I've seen it online, we can look it up. It's like the Wachowskis as eight bit characters talking about the philosophy of the Matrix, <laughs> and how ridiculous everything is. Um, and then we did a boss fight called Mega Smith, which thousands of Smiths come together and to make a giant Agent Smith. It was it was that fun. That sounds cool. It was more like a them like. Working off their own tropes and uh, trying different things. That's so fun. Yeah. It's weird yeah, that people yeah. don't talk about that more, considering people love when the Wachowskis talk about the Wachowskis. Yeah, and and they were really self-referential with their with the thing. So I, I got to animate eight bits versions of the Wachowskis. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> that's fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I went from so I did two, those two projects, and then um, I had my first son. We were down there in Orange County, and I was like, you know, we're the scene is it's really really expensive living down there. So we ended up moving oh, yeah. to Seattle. Um, it's nice. And then I got a job at a place called Gas Powered Games, which isn't around anymore either. Huh? Funny. <laughs> these, these studios, yeah. It's I, I've actually never talked to someone about like their like the the long durée of their career. Like we had a we had Josh Sawyer on a while back um, oh, yeah. on one of the. Yeah. The, the patron episodes and we'll be talking to him again but like um, with him it was like oh yeah I've been at Obsidian for like a really long time and before that I wrote on these games that sort of led to Obsidian and like right, but right, I've right. never talked to anyone who like who's been in the business as long as you have um, yeah. about like their history because it's it's really striking me how many of these studios I've heard of like uh, Gas Powered is the first one that I've never heard of but like okay. Shiny and you know and everything else is like yeah. very very familiar to me and um the Interplay, Atari, you know, like, and hearing all those names and being like, wow, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of corpses in this business. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, there are. I mean, of, I, like, ghost yeah. towns. I mean, I was a Bethesda for five. Obviously, they're still around. Um, yeah. Shiny was four or five years. And then Gas Powered, they did a game called Supreme Commander. Okay. Um, and Dungeon Siege. Um, oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's uh, Chris Taylor is the, the guy that ran that studio. Um, oh, I was there. Fairly big studio, then. Yeah, geez. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's my that's my uh, uh, mistake for not recognizing. Them. Oh no, yeah, it's yeah. fine. That's fine. They, I mean, they haven't really been in the news because they're not around anymore. But um, 
I was I, I I moved there when we shipped Supreme Commander, and then I worked on a Wii title that never saw the light of day. So it was two years of my life. That's heartbreaking. How's it like? I mean, what is it like to sort of have that happen? I mean, how do you how do you sort of how do you handle working on a, a release that gets like just tanked at the last minute? Yeah, it's and it wasn't last minute. I mean, it was pretty okay. obvious because it was a project that was signed with a, with a publisher with a certain design. And then it's like starting production too early in a game like that and getting bodies on it and getting people starting on it. We had an amazing art team. Um, actually, one of the artists, uh, one of the animators on that team uh, is up for, uh, his, he's, he directed a, he started a new studio and he directed a, um, a animated short that's up, up for an Oscar this week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and another, another artist uh, is, works for Image Comic, you know, has his own comic and image and. Is, like we had an amazing, amazing. Staff. That's fantastic! Wow, yeah, that's like a <laughs> yeah. star-studded cast. Oh, and actually, one of the other artists is the concept art lead at uh, at Bethesda for <laughs> for their other games. <laughs> well, all right, well, um, I miss all those guys, and it was a great team. But the design of the the sort of the core design of it, it was like a platformer type game for the Wii when Wii was hot. The, the short hot minute, it was hot. Um, uh, so it, the design never came together, and that's really where a lot of the problems of game of a game production fall apart. If, yeah. If you have certain milestones to meet so you can get paid and pay everybody, but then the design doesn't come together. So every milestone you're doing this thing where you're trying to just hit the milestone to get paid <laughs> so you can pay people. and, and oh. but, that, but that hurts the game because you're never ever finding the, the, the sort of the core of the game. So it feels like that, one of those, yeah. like, it feels like a kind of, like, um, inertia machine or, like, a momentum machine that would, uh, kind of, like, slow down over time. Like, you just yeah. kind of, like, you know that it's sort of running, you're running out by the last few milestones, I'm sure, but you're just, like, pushing to get to that one thing and then resting a second and then pushing and resting. Yep, and, yep. exactly. Ugh. It's, like, every couple of months, right? You're, like, let's just get this working on, you know, I mean, it, it was... So we had lots of different ideas for game, and it's changed course, and the writing was on the wall. And like by the end of it, we're like, "Yeah, this isn't going anywhere." And uh. I mean, and and really, the publisher did the right thing. Like, there's like they spent all this money on it. The game never made progress, and that was really a combination of things they wanted, a combination of things that we couldn't figure out as a studio so, or as a team. Yeah. Um, so that ended, and several of us left there to start a company called Uber Entertainment. Okay. Uh, which is still around. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first thing you'll find uh, yeah. if you Google it. But. No, so Uber started in 2008 before the real Uber that everyone else knows started. I think they started in 2009. I'm sure you guys had better labor practices. Yeah. <laughs> so we did a game called Monday Night Combat there. Okay. Uh, which was like a, a Dota shooter before that was a thing in 2010. Okay. And, and when, when, as an indie, independent studio, we were, we're a studio about 15, 20 people when that game shipped. Um, the only way to get a game out on a digital platform was you had to have a publisher like Microsoft because XBLA, Xbox Live Arcade, was a thing. Right. For a little that. while. Yeah. So um, Steam was coming on strong, too. But to get on a console, you'd have to have a publisher, someone that like a retail publisher, or you have to go through Microsoft. So, so we um, out of that three, four years of some of the arcade that was really good. Braid came out of that in two thousand nine. Uh, Limbo was the year we were with um, Bastion. 
and there's something else in the year after that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a lot of these oh. sort of indie games. Uh, yeah, like started, the yeah. like really really pivotal indie games. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so I was there for nine years. Wow. Eight nine years, I think. Yes. So we did Monday Night Combat. We did a game called Plant Train Annihilation. Just giant RTS that was a successfully funded Kickstarter when Kickstarter was still new. Oh, cool. Um, I think we raised two point two million. Wow. Yeah, that's a successful Kickstarter. Successful Kickstarter when people still care about Kickstarter, as in, I mean, people, you know, like. Well, yeah, it was cover, really cover Kickstarters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's like a there's a there's kind of a Kickstarter still going, but there's a very much a. Um, I remember when it first started when there was like a, a feeling of crowdfunding could be this like really important thing that we do to to change the, the landscape of uh of how creators get paid and how creators build things and now it's like crowdfunding's a thing where um if I need to make money I can propose a new card game. Yeah. Uh it's, it's a little different. Yeah, I mean it was let's see Tim Schaefer did double funded their Kickstarter. I think it was March or April 2012 and then we saw that and by August is when we launched ours. So it was still pretty fresh. Nice. Um, and that was sort of at that point in the studio it was like we either get this funded or we shut down the studio. Like it was it was rough, right? Like um, cuz we did Monday Night Combat which was we did well. It did well on Steam, it did well on Xbox, but then we made another uh, a free to play sequel called Super Monday Night Combat which we had no idea what we were doing and messed up a lot of things and ran, ran out of money, right, essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, as, as things happen. Right, sure. <laughs> the the, the, the age-old story. <laughs> um, <laughs> scope was too big, trying to figure out while the game was sort of live, trying to figure out what live the service means, you know, a game as a service and all the stuff that we didn't really know what we were doing. So it's So try the Kickstarter thing, and that project... Was on Steam, custom engine. It's like you can, it's an art giant RTS on planets, so on spheres, mm-hmm. um, and you attach rockets to moons and crash them into these giant planets. So it's like this crazy. That's awesome. That yeah, sounds like, great. Like really, really, really hardcore, massive scale RTS game. I mean, you know, if you have to defend any sort of use of scope. Uh, creep. Like, if you ever say, like, well, you know, <laughs> our 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 scope our scope got too big, and we just we couldn't couldn't manage it. Uh, I think a game where you crash planets into other planets by using like moons, and and that's how you that's the only defense. I mean, at that point, you say like, well, how could you how could you make it smaller? Like, you have to do this. Yeah, and then um, the VR craze started. Okay, so we're talking twenty fourteen. Like, we had friends that went to Oculus. I feel like everybody I knew at the time was going to Oculus. Okay. Like, um, so they reached out and said, hey, we have this new headset coming out. You want to pitch as a game? So um, I pitched a project to Oculus at the time with a small team. So I was, like, myself and six or seven other people within Uber. So we had several several teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that turned to a prototype, and then... We pitched to Sony, and we ended up going with Sony. So we we were like a launch title for the PlayStation VR. And oh, neat! What is this? Twenty sixteen, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was my first sort of game that I did lot sort of the running the team, art direction plus design and um, production, biz dev, 
uh, <laughs> working with a publisher, like all that stuff together um, on, a, on, a, on that kind of a scale. Um, so it was, uh, that game was called Wayward Sky. It was like a point-and-click adventure game, but in like a third-person god god eye view in nice. VR. Um, it's a cool so, idea for VR. You don't see a lot of that. Like you don't see a lot of like uh, you see a lot of like uh, obviously first-person shooters and games that are traditionally in first-person, but you don't see a lot of like adventure games that are sort of like third-person omniscient. Right, and that, that's, that's what. Yeah, and, and I was also pretty. I get motion sick, so. Yeah, so I do I. That I makes me really care. like excited about that. Like, I'm going to go check that out because, like, I I don't play VR games not because like I don't think they're cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't play them because it's like it it is, it's really hard for my motion sickness. Yeah, and I still get motion sick, so I still like like designing games around sort of making it comfortable for people to play. Mm. Um. Is a, is a big concern. So nice. Um, yeah. So that was 2016. While we were finishing that up, we, we pitched another project called Dino Frontier, uh, also with Sony, and that's a essentially like a, like a black and white kind of a city builder type cool. game. In VR, you're building a, a Western town, uh, and the world instead of other creatures, it's surrounded by dinosaurs. So you have like dinosaurs for horses and dinosaurs for coyotes and things like that so we um it's very cartoony and you play the role of big mayor essentially you know yeah. two floating hands and you pick up little settlers and assign them to do roles and um so that was really fun i mean it was again very comfortable you can play uh i can play for four or five hours without getting you know, any nice. motion sickness issues so oh that's um, great yeah so that was again with the same small team and by the end of that i was getting comfortable with the idea of doing sort of business development, trying to figure out how to get funding for things and getting more comfortable with design and things like that. So I decided to start um, thinking about starting a studio, and that's where Outer Loop um, came out of. Sweet. So I think Outer Loop, Outer Loop's like a really good opportunity to talk about like this idea you had about um, telling narratives that other people aren't telling. Like not, not that your other games didn't do that, obviously. Like, yeah. Your history is so rich, and there's like a million different like I don't know. There's like a million different directions your your work is taken, which is really really cool. Um, I'm like I'm fascinated by the way that you talk about um, like the the business of game making, and then also the the interest you have in other narratives and how that corresponds to to Falcon Age, which is like seems like the big project at Outer Loop now. Um, certainly the one you're most focused on, and a project that is definitely like leaning into issues of you know indigeneity and um, you know uh, 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 colonization and, and you know imperial uh, imperialism and that in nature like how do you sort of understand this story telling a story that hasn't been told in video games before right so I mean it's it came out of you know again being at all these different companies most of the teams actually all their teams or 90% white male teams. Okay. Um, so, like, so the perspectives and ideas that come out of that, I mean, you see a lot of this with a lot of Western games. Colonization has been is such a core concept to most open world <laughs> sandbox games. It's not it's, it's it's not even thought of it as a as a as a bad thing. Right. Yeah. You want to you want to make the like it's it's something that is um, it's 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 sort of like not intellectually satisfying, but satisfying from a sort of lizard-brained way of saying, like, oh, all the 
all the map rooms on this Metroidvania I'm playing, I've made all the gray rooms blue, or like I'm, right, I've, right. I've expanded the map, or I've taken over this much territory so I can beat my enemies. Like, yeah, almost any yeah. game really is just right, like yeah. so bound to it. And really, any story that's like a stranger in a strange land ends up kind of taking a colonizer trope or idea because it's it's familiar to people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like oh, that's a good way to. Um, frame the story. Um, uh, so I grew up, I was born in Sri Lanka, um, okay. which is which is a former British colony, and then before the British, it was the Portuguese, and then, uh, you know, so it's been, it's uh, the Dutch, so it's, it's a long history as a, as a, as a colony. Um, and I was actually, when I started Outerloop, I also wanted to, you know, focus on trying to get a little more diversity in our team, and, um, and sort of think about, I don't see a lot of South... Asian or Southeast Asian type characters as main characters in games, and I thought, oh, it'd be cool, like from sort of my perspective, um, yeah. And also trying to trying to think about sort of, uh, sort of to tell stories with more more characters um, that that would be interesting, but also interesting gameplay wise too. To I mean, it always stands out in a way, right? Like, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, even even like Apex Legends recently, mm-hmm. the fact that there are sort of like characters that are. Um, brown in just in any case like they don't actually right. like i'm sure they have backstories and i've just haven't been reading the appropriate documents but like because i've been too busy playing apex legends but yeah. the like you know the characters in that like stand out because they're not just like you know your bog standard white characters right. um, they seem to actually be like you know maybe black maybe southeast asian like there's there's a there's a, a quality of there that almost surprises you in terms of like you don't see it very often and even that like that lack of sort of like i, I guess it's like it's a little passe to say but like Simply just represent, or seems it, but probably isn't. Just like representation in general, right? Like just like actually having those characters there. Yeah, um, yeah. Just like I mean, means I, a lot. Totally. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up. I grew up here. I mean, I moved to the states when I was eight, so like, okay. t- TV was a thing. I learned how to sp- learn to uh, speak English to watching Sesame Street, watching Different Strokes, watching you know the A Team or whatever. And yeah, uh, there was a lot of. I didn't see a lot of characters that kind of look like me or I could identify with or you know uh, I think so that that kind of hung with me for a long time and I we're seeing more of that now which is awesome like oh yeah for sure yeah I was actually just talking about this I, I recorded uh, another episode today and we were just talking about the fact that like TV these days seems to represent like so many and obviously it, it creates angst among the more regressive arms of society but yeah. um, the ways that like TV is representing like you know, more nuanced emotion and, and more nuanced uh, characterization, but then also just, like, different people. Like, my my daughter has seen more, like, uh, characters who aren't just, like, standard white characters on TV than I probably did by the time I was, you know, 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Like, I, I'm really... I feel like there's a, there is a, uh, a demand for it, and mm-hmm. especially for me, personally, I was like, I want to see more of this. Like, I feel yeah. like... If I do, maybe other people are interested in it too. And again, like the scale where um, the scale ladder loop, we're seven of us, eight of us, depending on on, on when. But <laughs> um, so it's not like I'm trying to make this. I feel like the bigger the scale of a game you do, the less people you need to offend for it to be successful. Um, <laughs> or or sort of the sort of the sort of the rougher edges or or. I don't know, strong political takes uh, get uh, watered down. Yeah, and this game seems to have strong political takes. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll no, it's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Strong political takes I like, too. Uh, yeah. Not that that's necessary, but, uh, you know, yeah. I, I'm pleased to see it. Yeah, and yeah, at the end of the day, I'm trying to make something that's that I hope people enjoy and entertained by. And, and really, like, we have this sort of contrasting things, which the thing that is the most gifable about this game is our baby bird. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> yeah, so. So cute. And then it's set in this backdrop of uh, a colony that's been, you know, been sort of, uh, been a colony for a long time, so there's sort of a dark parts to it too. Um, did you play Eighty Days by any chance? I didn't play Eighty Days. Okay, I, so uh, talk to me about Eighty Days. So uh, Meg Giant, who's the who wrote that about a, uh, it's like a Jules Verne traveling yeah. around the world in Eighty Days and deals a lot with sort of colonization and that that part of. Uh, Okay, yeah, this is definitely one of those games I yeah. planned to play and then never Yeah, World Exploration. It's very, very narrative-heavy and story-heavy. And um, I heard Meg on a podcast, and I was like, I feel like we should work together. So I reached out to her. Cool. We had mutual friends. And then I you know, I had this sort of the one-page or one-page treatment of what I wanted to do with uh, Falcon Age. Um, and then we just chatted. And we, I mean, she grew up in India. She lives in London, and she has families both in India and London. She travels back and forth, so like she also understands or some of the, the, the sort of the themes that I wanted to explore. And um, so she took my one page and made it good and interesting. Um, <laughs> Always so, important. Yeah. She's a great writer and just a great collaborator and good narrative designer. And so um, before we sort of fleshed out the world, we, we worked on that for a while. And um, at the same time, like the business part of this is um, figuring out the mechanics of the game and what it's going to feel like and how do we get funding and all this stuff too. So uh, we're kind of doing all this at once. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we start with a prototype, then figure out what the sort of the framing of the, of the story is going to be and who you are as a character and what the world is. And um, so that's, that's sort of where we were and then um, trying to tie it everything together into I mean, it's really the basic idea is what if colonization, the British colonization never stopped, what does it look like in, you know, in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, which it becomes less about government, more about privatized companies. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, let's send, send these automated, uh, you know, essentially dropship, and then there's all these resources we want on this one little rock of a planet somewhere. Um, and how do you get the uh, the native population to go along with your plans? And you know, do you take them by force, or do you entice them with other things? And so yeah. kind of explore some of that in, in within the gameplay. Uh, it feels like, in some ways, like you're it, there's like a you know the the question of like what if uh, British colonization never ended? I mean, there's like there's almost an implicit um, there's almost an implicit answer there, which is like to say, well, it, in a lot of ways, it didn't. Which <laughs> is yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to, to sort of point to the privatization is to say, like, well, this yeah. is, you know, this, this is like, this is what it would look like. like this, doesn't this look a little familiar? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing they're mining is going to be used for to making the equivalent of iPhone somewhere, you know, like what, whatever yeah. that is. It's going to be some some sort of tchotchke thing that is used by people somewhere else that are benefiting from, you know, these raw resources. So, um, oh, yeah. go ahead, please. Go ahead. So is this going to be, is Falcon Age going to be a VR game explicitly, or is it going to be VR and non-VR? So it's playable in both. Cool. Um, we did, I mean, that's, so this is a, as a team. So when I started Outerloop, it, um, I have some of the same people I worked with in the past. So, you know, some of us have been working together for 10 plus years. Um, 
you know, formerly at Uber and then formerly at Shiny, actually, uh, my animator, uh, Ong, he's been, he and I have been working together like 15 years for over three, four companies now, so. Oh, wow. Uh, nice. Yeah. That's so. Uh, I actually, I saw his, um, I saw his weightlifting on your, on your page. Oh, man. He, Un- okay. Unbelievable. Okay. So, he is, yeah, it's a whole other thing. In his spare time, he loves doing parkour stuff. And he has, like, a huge following on YouTube, and then he has a huge following on TikTok, like, massive. Okay. <laughs> he just does dumb things. I can see things. why. I yeah, mean, that, just, the gif yeah. where he's just, like, or the, it was not a gif, it's a cliff. The clip where he's, like, lifting the four weights interconnected yeah. around him and yeah. the one in his mouth. Like, that's, I mean, that's a hit TikTok. That's yeah, like, no, he started with wall running, and then, wow. then he introduced, like, dice and juggling and skateboarding and, like, all these random things. <laughs> he's just like good at all of them. And by the way, he's an amazing animator, right? So anything motion you see from Falcon Age, that's him. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's like a, he's like a legend. He's a legend, and he's like the nicest shy person in, in person. So he lives sort of through. He, you know, his videos are more uh, you know out there than he is actually. Than he is, yeah, which is great. Like he's yeah. super nice. Anyway, so uh, what we're we talking about? Oh yeah. Um, I forget now. Uh, Falcon Age VR. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, so we it's our third VR game as a team, so we kind of understood how to do that, but we also wanted to... We felt like the game could translate well um, to a non-VR game. So if you think that... If you play like a Firewatch, um, mm-hmm. the controls are very much like that. So you see like your full body, and then you have interactions with the world, you have your hands and arms, yeah. you run around. I mean, the big difference is you have a Falcon on your hand too, right? So... The, yeah. The, yeah, I was gonna so, ask you, yeah. like, where did the Falcon, like, wh- what made you want to incorporate the Falcon? Because I mean, there's such a, it, it, I've seen gameplay video and like it yeah. does seem, it's a really cool idea. Like, it feels like something when once you see it, you're like, oh, why didn't anyone do that before? Right. Um, I mean, it is. I'll, for lack of better words, I'll say it's a game ass game, right? There's yeah. actual gameplay and combat and conflict and. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look like a walking simulator, which is yeah. like not to say yeah. I don't like walking simulators. I don't mean yeah. that as a derog- as like a negative no, no. necessarily, but like yeah. this looks like a game that you actually play. Like it's, right, yeah. right. There's mechanics and 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 stuff like that. So um, so you know, I don't know, man. Where do ideas come from? I guess it's just <laughs> <laughs> that is a big question. You're right, <laughs> um, but I will say one of the inspirations was um, YouTube. There was okay. this clip I remember seeing years ago. It was like this. It was. It was like I think it was from a movie shoot, but it they caught these during the movie, sh- movie shoot. They caught these golden eagles out in the. Uh, I think the, I want to say Kazakhstan, okay. maybe. Uh, golden eagles are massive birds, uh, and there were there was a they were hunting mountain goats, which I didn't know was a thing you can do. Uh, mountain with goats are falcons. Were with golden eagles. Wow, that's with golden eagles. So th- there's one wild. clip of this golden eagle flying down, picking up a, a mountain goat. Um, and lifting off with it, but it's too heavy, so it struggles and it just drops it on the side of a cliff, and then it, the goat just hits the ground, tumbles, and dies. And the wow. golden eagle goes in and has a meal. Right? Like, I was like, that's insane. Like, that's <laughs> yeah, that's so I, yeah, unbelievable. That's like just but, like you, you sort of you start thinking like, uh, man, these these animals are much smarter than we. Yeah. So <laughs> then, like that led me that led me to. Th- that led me to kind of research falconry and other birds and like you know how it's cool thing about making games is you can really deep dive into any subject that's interesting to you and figure out like some interesting mechanics that come out of that could be yeah. for games so that's one thing i love about game 
development because you can come from a whole lots of different backgrounds, and be, whatever you're interested in could be could be you know something that could be great for uh, a game too. So yeah, I mean, what about so like it, this is a really interesting thought because like what mm. a what about like the actual thematics of the game connect to those mechanics for you? I guess in other words, like. You know, there's there's that element of of being a game maker where it's like, oh, this is going to be really cool to play. Like, this right. is going to be really fun for the gamer, like the, right. the player to actually like enjoy and, and have mechanically. And then there's the other part where you're like, where clearly you're you're thinking as like in a narrative arc, and you're thinking like, wow, this is going to be a really good way to, to tell this story. This is going to to work out. Like, where do those two things connect for you? I think that's just again, where do ideas come from? Is sort yeah. of like at the time I was thinking of starting out a loop. And as a studio, like, what's important to me and what's important to us and what kind of hopefully leave some sort of uh, uh, impact in, the, in, you know, in games. And um, here are the sort of things I've been thinking about for a, lot of, a long time I'd like to express and, uh, as a game maker. And, mm-hmm. and mechanically also, I, I, like, I'm also very mechanically driven too. Like, oh, what, what, this, this mechanic could be interesting. Yeah. And I have this doc... Um, that I just throw ideas into, like a Google Doc. Oh, cool. Just Every time I think of something, I'm like, oh, this would be cool, and I just throw it in there and forget about it. And um, So it's one of those instances where the mechanic, falconry mechanic, could be interesting. And also, oh, I think looking at the history of sort of uh, falconry in Asia and the history of falconry, and there might be a way to bridge those two gaps. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of like, oh, this could be cool. And then, then, then I kind of wrote a treatment of like what would be an interesting um, setting, and kind of take it from things I, I'm familiar with and the history of Sri Lanka and India and sort of the idea of British colonies and what would that look like in this uh, setting. And um, I also, I'm also kind of drawn to fantastical settings more too than uh, realistic settings, and it, it allows us to have a little more leeway with sort of um, the tone and sure. The visuals, um, so setting it in like a desert planet in a in a futuristic world, but also grounded. Like my 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 favorite kind of sci-fi is not, I don't know what you would call it, but like you like the hard like sci-fi more hard than the sci-fi, soft sci-fi. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So like a lot of the technology is, is recognizable. A lot of the a lot of the costume designs and things are kind of a, a mishmash of cultures. Um, so that's sort of I think. I, yeah, that's the thing I'm attracted to. Um, so yeah, I mean, this the Falcon Age came out of a bunch of different things all kind of lining up. You know, like it's like you have a it's like you have a, a puzzle that just has all the pieces all strewn about, and at some point you're like, oh, I can see how this could work together. You know, so yeah, uh, it's a messy. You know, I don't know. I, again, where does creativity come from? It's kind of messy in the first, and then things become more clear, and then you kind of pick a direction that is interesting to you. I think one of the most interesting things yeah. I find doing this podcast is actually hearing them about the messy stuff. So yeah. that's like a perfect answer for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always messy. And then yeah. I think it took me a long time to be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Like, because when you look at, when you watch documentaries or, um, I, I love listening to other people's process. Like, yeah. I, I love, love, like, I, I love watching No Clip and watching, like, Supergiant uh, yeah. going through that stuff. And it's never... No one's no one just like comes out with this design doc and then everyone just <laughs> makes that. It's never that ever clean, ever 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 clean. I mean, as far as I know, like uh, I, I don't know any creator that just has a, a grand vision and then it just carried out. Maybe Kojima. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but like at the same point, like he, you know, 
this is a dude who had to bounce around a bunch before he did Metal Gear, and even that kind of like went out of his hands. And yeah, I yeah, yeah I, I, I'm I'm replaying the Metal Gear games for for a book I'm working on. So like I've, mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts on Kojima right now. But yeah, I think I think even there, it's sort of it's like one of those things where it's like yeah, I'm sure he had a vision, but uh, it took a long time to get there for. Him. I mean, really, the the only difference between someone that wants to make games, someone's already making games, is just the faith in that it'll work out. Yeah, like, it's not a huge. There's no magical barrier. Um, if you really want to, at this point, especially now, like I was uh, when say I started, yeah, yeah, when I started, I had no idea what the tools were, and everything was super expensive, and there's no internet uh, <laughs> to look or YouTube to look up stuff. So I mean, man. the internet of '96 is not the internet of today. <laughs> that's what I cut my teeth on, and and that's certainly yeah, they couldn't be more different. Dude, I had my. My nice 600 baud modem and AOL and yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, and, and like you know, the, the idea of like watching YouTube and being like, oh yeah, someone put up an hour doc and like it's about how they made this like or like the idea of NoClip, right? Where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched like NoClip in '96 would have been trading VHSs or like some sort of like uh, uh, extremely niche TV that you could yeah. never, you would never be able to download it. It would take, I remember my my like story about the old internet was trying to download a five minute clip and it took four hours and I remember it being like this big deal when I finally got a hold of it I was like yes finally worked. oh man yeah such a such a classic classic old thing um, yeah but yeah, yeah I mean, no for sure like oh go ahead sorry I was gonna say so for Falcon Age it was like the basic uh, setup was that I, th- I thought it would be interesting to learn to become a Falcon Hunter in the context of a narrative with yeah. this world so that's sort of like the narrative, I think, could be interesting. The mechanic is interesting. The characters could be interesting. And also, when I think about, especially these days, like, how do you... There's so many games. You know, I, also, I'm a visual thinker, so I'm like, how do I... If I do a screenshot of the game, is it going to stand out? And having a falcon on the forefront, I feel like, okay, that, that'll probably stand out. That'll stand out. People are going to know it's from your yeah. game. Right. I guess that, that's a good point, because, like... You know the the alternative would be like having a gun, and like I've seen a million screenshots of like just hands holding a gun, but very few screenshots of hand holding a falcon. Right, and then um, so while I was sort of figuring out this concept, before you know, and then I think there was a, a, a documentary came out called The Eagle Huntress. Mm-hmm. Um, I was about a young girl uh, growing up in Kazakhstan to a to a line of falcon hunt, uh, like a falconry family. Cool. It was her going through to learn to become a falconer um, and like a lot of the rituals and culture, uh, which was really interesting. So I was like, oh, that's, that's really interesting too. Um, and then Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out, or the one before that had a falcon. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, was that, um, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> they're both O's, aren't they? I don't remember now. I think one of them I, might be Origins and one's Odyssey. Oh, yes, Origins, right? Yeah. That, was, that was the one, yeah, which was beautiful world, and I was like, oh, no, we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Ubisoft's going to kill us before we even announce our title. Um, but, I mean, there it was cool. Like, obviously, like, really, really deep game and open world. It's not what we're aiming for, but their Falcon was essentially a map. Mm, yeah, um, you know you can you can mark things and you can fly overhead and control the falcon, but or eagle, um, but it wasn't sort of like this nurturing uh, balance gameplay balance of you know this pet that also is a weapon as also is my friend kind of thing. So 
Right, yeah. No, and I mean, like, one of the things that I think is so fascinating, this is a question that I've had looking at the work a lot, and until we were talking, I didn't really have a way of phrasing it. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things I think is so cool about your work in Falcon Age is that, like, there is, there's kind of, like, a story being told. Obviously, like, I read I read up on it to know a little bit more about the back backstory, but, like, the just looking at the screenshots with the Falcon of like, like bonding with it and, and raising it and stuff. There's kind of like a story being told just with, by way of the mechanics in a way that isn't like particularly, um, particularly common. Um, like you, the, the, the Falcon isn't just like a tool. It's actually a narrative arc in and of itself in a certain right, way. Right. Right. I mean, um, how, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How are you, like, how are you doing, how are you doing story in this game? Are you doing a lot of like, and lore and like world building? Is it a lot of like, um, are you are you taking like the documents route of like finding finding things around? Are people telling you the stories? Are you sort of is it sort of like catch as catch can like a sort of Dark Souls half story kind of way? How are you dealing with the the various narratives that need to be built in this game? Yeah, so the one thing we haven't really shown too much is uh, like what the dialogue system looks like. Mm-hmm. There's this um, um, there's a whole conversation that you have with any NPC or character and quest giver or whatever and that sort of the character's needs and what you chat about gets you pieces of the of the world. Yeah. Um, um, you start in a colonizer prison. So your first conversation is with your parole officer robot. And then you get a sense of who you are, why you're there, what they're trying to do. Because their whole, there's this, uh, essentially, they want you to graduate to be a, a, a good citizen so you can work off planet at some dumb factory right hmm. like yeah like hey you did great now you get to do this awesome job or not so awesome job so i mean you, you get a <laughs> you, you get a lot of sort of the sort of the setup for it sure and you're not going along with it um and then you end up you know befriending this falcon while you're in prison and then with the two of you together is how you break out so that's so the initial sort of uh, first chapter you get the, the, the setting and who you are and and why you're there, and um, so one thing that so Meg came on as a writer, and then uh, Cassandra Ka, uh, who is a currently a, a staff writer on Ubisoft Montreal. Okay. Um, she, I've read a lot of her short stories, which I, I love, and I wanted to sort of portray an Asian auntie in a game that I haven't seen <laughs> yet. So <laughs> your your sort of main person that helps you is your auntie. I think she's in some of our screenshots. But she is... Yeah, I was going to say, this character sounds like a character that I've seen in screenshots. Yeah, so she's part of a resistance that's been... That's essentially failed resistance, but she's kind of holding on for, like, hope, something change. Mm-hmm. So she kind of trains you to um, be a falconer and uh, help you. And she's, like, your main sort of uh, uh, thread throughout the, the story. Nice. And she's your she's your caretaker because your 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 you know your dad passed away and your mom's not around and that that gets there's no spoilers but it's it, you know it gets, it gets talked about in the game but um so she's a rough rough uh, auntie character that is uh, loves you but is not emotionally there for you at the same time so it's, okay. it's, so we kind of so it's a lot of the lore and um, story comes from the conversations and there's conversation choices. Um, that you make as, as a player and things like naming the, what you name the Falcon and what kind of things you, you want to take on and things like that. So nice. 
I, I like that you're. I like that you're doing it with uh, with dialogue. I feel like that's a that's a choice not a lot of people make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like there's that's because it's so like I don't I don't quite know the word for it. I'm gonna get it messed up because I'm not a, a film scholar by trade. But like it's yeah. it's sort of like it's almost like diegetic storytelling where yep. like you know you're, you're sort of like you're dealing with the stuff in the game as opposed to. Um, you know, oh, uh, you talked to this person and now you have a, a design document that has been ported into your, your folder and you can read later and, you know, it's a, it's a dossier on this person, like, where it's a, it's a, a description of the world. And, like, that's not to say there's nothing I don't like about that because, of course, sure. games yeah. like Morrowind or games like um, uh, the, the Mass Effect games, like, there's a million games that do that quite well and, and have a lot of great fun codexes and stuff. But I love the idea of having it, like, out there, like, Spoken, sort of like a, a kind of like uh, um, oral lore that you get, as opposed to something written down and codified. Right. Um, I mean, there's certainly, you know, games like Morrowind and Bioshock are much, much bigger, massive teams, and like so, fleshing out the um, documents you find or books are are a big part of that. I mean, our our game scale and size and production is much smaller, so it's a narrative single player game. It's probably going to play four to six hours. There are certainly sandboxy areas where, like the world, you can walk from one end to the other. Um, and but there, you don't like pacing is controlled by the player. There are areas that for combat, there are areas that you chat with other characters, there are areas for shopping, there are areas for farming, um, and then the areas that open up once you get certain type of gear for your bird, uh, okay. things like that. Uh, we'll talk about that more, but um, so yeah, I mean, there's. I am not a okay. Let's talk about this. Have you seen Pitch Black? <laughs> the the movie? Yeah, ages ago. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember? Uh, was it Chronicles of Riddick? Was the sequel? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the difference between the Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick for me is is how I like to appear, approach games. Pitch okay. Black was got you right into the action. You learned about who you are and what the world is through action. Yeah. Chronicles of Riddick was this massive ass lore. And people talking to the to the screen about <laughs> what the lore was, right? What the lore was, and I was like, okay, I I, I I don't just show me, don't tell me. So that's sort of well, yeah, and that's why Pitch Black was such a that that reminds me a lot of like when you get a first draft, like a first kind of like uh, ambitious but not expected to succeed sort of like project that really mm-hmm. catches on, like Pitch Black. As yeah. opposed to Riddick, where it's the second one where they're like, okay, now we got to nail everything down, as opposed to the first one where it's like, let's just try it, see what goes on. Yeah, and that's sort of, when I think about Falcon Age, I don't think about a sequel. Like, we can, we can retcon a sequel if it's successful if you wanted to do it, <laughs> but I'm like, what's the, what's the best story we can do with, with the resources we have and the time we have, and how can we make it the most interesting for the player, right? Mm, so, yeah. Um, yeah, no, uh, that's great. So that's sort of been an approach. It's like I want to like the game starts immediately and you're in the prison and then like there's no big lore or things you have to read to to get into it. So, so um, what kind of things? I mean, you you don't have to talk too much about yeah. too much out of, cla- out of class. I don't want to make you reveal anything that you uh, you don't you don't want to. But like, what kind of things can you can you do with the Falcon? I mean, like this is something yeah. I've I've not been able to ask someone uh, at this stage in development, but I'm sure. fascinated. Like I, I've seen the costumes, I've seen some of the some of the growth of the Falcon, but what is, you, you talk about like equipment and uh, development, so like what, is that, what does that look like? What are some of the things right. you do? Right, so you, the game starts with a baby bird, um, and then you very do cute. like, yeah, and so I mean, the, the setting is also our, you know, has learned a little bit about falconry from her auntie growing up. Okay. She's never done it, but it's like, so uh, you learn to like 
so the one of the biggest mechanically what you do as a player um, in VR and non VR is you, you learn to whistle for the bird. So you know on the on the PlayStation DualShock the 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 left buttons are for bird related. Okay. So like L two is hold down. You see a pointer, essentially a laser pointer, and whenever you release the button, the bird will go do the thing. Whether it's go pick up this fruit, go attack this enemy. It's very contextual, right? Okay. Yeah. And then the L one button is a whistle. So your character will whistle when you press it. That means hey, whatever you're doing, come back to me now. Um, and when the bird comes back to you, if you told it to go fetch something, it'll have something in its beak, right? Okay. Or if you told it to hunt, it'll bring back the meat for you. Um, and then the right buttons is the player character, ours. So you have a, a, a baton, a stun baton, which is like a short-range weapon. You essentially, you have a short melee weapon, and the bird is your long-range um, uh, fetch, attack, or hit, you know, reach areas you can't reach. Mm-hmm. So there, there may be a bridge that you can't reach, but the bird can, you know, go uh, fly over and... You know, break a rope or something to to uh, to bring something back to you. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, um, and then uh, the rest of the buttons you have uh, a dedicated bird button. <laughs> so <laughs> when the bird's on your hand, if you hit the square button, it'll pet, which is a healing mechanic. Okay. So if your bird's that's hurt, that's nice. So you have to pet your bird. You have to pet your bird. You got to I mean, include yeah. that in there. You yeah, got yeah, to yeah. give people an incentive to do the yeah. cool thing. And then if the bird's holding something, you hit the square button, it'll They'll take the thing out of their mouth, like a fruit or something. Okay. And then uh, you have a map, dedicated map button, so you can see where you are and kind of see where the missions are and things like that. And then you have an inventory of items. Um, so through the course of the game, you'll you'll meet people that'll make things for your bird. Like, oh, there's this area with landmines I can't get across till you find a sonar or find a, get a sonar a backpack for your bird. Right. Okay. So now the bird can fly over and show you where the landmines are, and you can walk around it, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's clever. I like that. And, and then later, you can dig up those mines because you can upgrade your bird's claws with these digging claws that won't disturb the landmines. So. Okay, uh, so then they can, they can, like, can they then like fetch the mines for you, or is it just yep, like... Yeah, they can okay. dig them up uh, and then fetch them and dismantle, and then you can dis- disable and get through. There's some areas you can't get through until you get that. So it's like... Okay. The the world is open, but there's areas locked off till you get certain tools for the bird. Totally makes sense. Yeah, and, and then oh, yeah. good. And then so there's other just cosmetic items. That was my next question. What is like <laughs> yeah. talk talk about the costumes? Talk about the cute hats. Yeah, so there's lots of hats. Um, again, there's a shopkeeper in in an abandoned town who is loves making stuff for little animals. He's got a little lizard on his on his shoulder. So, <laughs> and falcons have kind of died off in this world so seeing a falcon around is like a big deal to people so um that's sort of part of the narrative arc too is like okay you know all the falconers have forgotten a lot of things and your auntie still remembers when she was younger but um so that's you know like having a falcon around is is, it's a big deal um so yeah there's lots of hats uh there's a hat slot there's a uh, eye slot a beak slot uh when i say slot there's different things you can put on yeah, yeah, like sort of like sort yeah. of like an RPG style thing where, like, yeah. yeah, and then uh, narratively, it's like the shopkeeper is kind of working off both sides. Like he's he's friendly with the with the resistance, but he also has a lot of uh, off world rich friends he can barter with. So there's like these movie props and uh, <laughs> top hats and monocles <laughs> that are off world. You know, um, that's really good. 
I was just doing quote fingers when I said I'll furl that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? Um, <laughs> um, so there's... So there, <laughs> so a lot of the sort of the main way of you helping the resistance is uh, these are, there's just refineries that are around the world, um, and we you and your falcon go and reclaim those refineries, um, and these are all automated robots, and there's different sentries, and then so the sort of a lot of mechanical balance of the you and the bird is initially we had the bird you could do everything, and it made you as the player character not as important, right. Right, so then we sort of start introducing elements like, oh, there's these anti-air turrets that if the bird goes near, we'll get shot with needles, and bird gets hurt. Uh, and when the bird gets hurt, it flies back to you, and it won't fly anymore, right? Like, it's, it'll land near you, and then you have to call it, and then pull the needles out, and, and uh, pet it to heal it, and yeah. then you make different snacks for the bird that also heal it, or give it buffs or boosts. Um, so cooking and farming is part of it. It ends up essentially being like, okay, I've reclaimed this, I've reclaimed this refinery. Now it's turning into a farm. I can plant far, uh, uh, plants there. So again, like a lot of the resources have died off and sort of like getting, finding specific fruit and vegetables is a big deal in the yeah, world. Yeah. <laughs> so that you can start like reclaiming it and, and farming again. So um, there's a and, real ecological yeah. statement here. Right, yeah. Okay. But also, again, like... I'm tricking you with the cute bird, and then we're gonna hit you over the head with with a couple things. <laughs> That's clever. They're gonna get getting more people playing because of the cute bird, and then uh, snuck into the other stuff. Yeah. So there's all these different sort of uh, there's we have this uh, cooker, a rice cooker is like a staple of every Asian family, or especially my family. So I was like, oh, we got to put a cooker in there, so you could throw like you find these recipes in the world, and you can throw a different uh, combination of uh, meats and vegetables or fruit, and then. It will make you like a, a samosa or a cutlet <laughs> cool. or like a little little Asian treat um, that is essentially for your bird. Some of them will speed her up. Some of them will heal her. Some of them will give her better better defense. Some of them are stealth. You know, there's different buffs, uh, temporary buffs with the food. So again, game ass game. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, no, I'm I'm for it. I think it's yeah. great because I feel yeah. like you know one of the things that I've noticed about uh, games that try and like. I don't know, like game, uh, games that have the kind of like uh, ambition of, of Falcon Age, a lot of them end up not being a game-ass game, right? Like a lot of mm-hmm. them, and, and that's not to say they're bad. I like I like games that are, like I said about Walking Simulators, I like that. I feel that way about Twine Games. I feel that way yeah. about a lot of different games. I can I can play a lot of different games. Yeah. But sometimes I really want to play a game that's like, you know, a game. And that, yeah. that's really, really compelling like that. This is a game about you being a falconer and you get to like, do the mechanics of being a falconer and you get to give buffs and you get to do all the things that kind of make sense from a like lizard brain gaming perspective but uh right. yeah but it has a good story behind it as well um i also want to kind of mention so there's that aspect um so we did we did our first reveal of pax prime mm-hmm. um or pack well i guess they call it pax west now but i always call it pax prime it's the first one um and then a lot of that came out of that it was people just wanted to play with the bird hmm we had people that were never, I could tell, never held a DualShock controller before that just wanted to sit down and play with the bird. Interesting. So out of that, we did that and we did Day of Devs, which is another event in San Francisco. Um, again, more... So, you know, I kind of changed the design and kind of the feel of the of the game based on some of the feedback, too. And one of the things we're doing 
um, is when you when you load up the game, you have sort of this regular story mode, and you have what we call imprint mode. Imprint is a term used by falconers when a bird uh, bonds with a human as their parent. Okay. So in imprint mode, we essentially turn off all the enemy AI. Okay. Um, so you still play through the whole game. You can decide to bash up a robot if you want, but they won't fight back. Okay. So if you want to just mess with the bird and the hats and farming and hunting or just read through the dialogue, you know, go through the dialogue. and oh, That's cool. Yeah. I, I hope like, it's a good idea. <laughs> I think it sounds like a good idea. I, I think a lot of games don't do that. And I think like, you know, yeah. one of the, I mean, difficulty is fun for me mm-hmm. sometimes. And then other times I just kind of want to get the story. Yeah. And I'm sure so, there are people who like never want difficulty. Just like, it's right. like you know, I, I want to, I want a version where I can play with the bird and not have to worry about like the game elements of this. Yeah, and, and, and in both both modes, um, you can you get a hat that's more player-focused f- uh, in the beginning of the story. Um, cool. Well, a little bit farther down the story, that lets you turn the baby bird into an adult bird, adult bird back into baby bird. The, the game's fully playable with both birds. Oh, fun. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, I, I like I like that, 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 that you included that little bit of... Uh, a little bit of like almost fan service. Like to, yeah, we, <laughs> we initially, we were originally just going to do it for imprint mode, but um, so we had real life falconers come by the booth and play it. Cool. Uh, they all want the adult bird. They're like, oh yeah, I want this bird. This is the bird I want. And then uh, most of the people, they're just like, well, I, want it, I want the baby bird. I was like, oh, okay, we just, we'll give you the option. It's cool. <laughs> it doesn't really hurt the story or the no. narrative. Like it's, yeah. I like I like that flexibility towards the, the, the story and the, the, the world too, where it's like, well, is this request, I mean, this request totally makes sense. Is it going to really affect what we're doing as, like, as a company and what we're doing in terms of, like, in the end, like, when the answer becomes no, it's like, well, let's just do it. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think and, that's and, cool. And, and really, like, it was early enough on where designing the outfits and hats and things and scaling for both birds wasn't too difficult. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing, when you get laid into a game, right, like, I don't know, like a Mass Effect where you have... Or uh, you know any of those or Skyrim, we have hundreds, hundreds of people working on it, and and thousands of assets. Yeah. You can't really just react to a, a demo you did at E3, right? Like it's, I mean, that, I feel like that's sort of the the strength of being a small studio too. You can Definitely. react to things quicker. Um, yeah, I, I thought I've been thinking about that a lot with um, uh, playing uh, Anthem and then playing Apex, just because those are like the two games of the moment in a lot of ways. But like. Um, actually, any game really. After people played Apex, are like, "Well, will you include a ping system? Like, our ping system right. going to be part of this?" And like, yeah. when I hear that, I, I immediately think like that totally makes sense. I love the ping system and would want it too. And then it's like that must take so much to implement. <laughs> like, yeah, that must just be I mean, the hardest thing to just. Oh yeah, sure, fine. I, I'll do that in a second. Because there's a, a voice voice call for every ping, right? Yeah. Relative to the thing you're p- pointing at. Yeah, exactly. The characters. <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's a crazy thing. To, I mean, even if you just wanted to implement something where you press a button and a ping shows up for every character, like yeah. that's uh, that's a new graphic. That's a new. I mean, that's I, I don't even know anything about gaming, and I can imagine how much of a headache it would be. Yeah, the the ping in um, Portal Two co-op was one of my favorite things in there. Oh too. yeah, totally. I feel but like yeah, just, that that was that yeah. was one of the first times I saw it too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but like something like that is impossible. But it's cool to think about things that like okay, 
yeah, we can do this. We can, we can make this change. We can do this for people. And I mean, that's so smart. Like just thinking about what you want to do, but then also thinking about like what, what your audiences want. Yeah. And I, I know for a lot of my, uh, uh, friends that are women and play online games, they don't even want to turn on voice chat because soon as, you know, most of the audience hears it's a woman talking, then it's just, it's, yeah. it's bad. So I've heard that having too. the, yeah. yeah, having and have, being able to not wanting to talk and have a way to still play co-op in a in a competitive game, I think it's, it's that's yeah. great. It's great for people too. So. Well, yeah. I am like super excited about your game now, more so than I was even when we started. And I I started out pretty excited about it. Um, are you? <laughs> hope, are, I hope I hope I didn't oversell it. It's it's not a huge game. So. Well, no, I'm also I'm also a fan <laughs> of short games. I like short okay, games. I right. think they. I like. I've always been. Um, it's like my maybe my most like um, there's a there's an old Mr. Show sketch where um, I don't know if you ever watched Mr. Show but like the, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah I remember the show yeah. um, there's the old Mr. Show sketch where uh, where David Cross's character keeps uh, you know one upping um, Bob Odenkirk's character mm-hmm. the donut mm-hmm. shop over like what he's elitist about and eventually he's like they're talking about music he's like oh I only listen to things when they're on the Victrola uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but that my, my sort of version of that is like uh, I get I get all kind of like I can get on my soapbox sometimes about what how much more I like um, one shot comic books over uh, long stories mm-hmm. and like just because like they they force a kind of like economy of story that you know is it is so wonderful when it actually works it can be forgettable when it doesn't work but like when it actually works it's really great and that's kind of how i feel about short games too where it's like you know a four to six hour game if the if the team is like really in on it together and they're all on the same page and like it's a cool story it can be so much more memorable than a 70 hour game right i mean there's a lot of things you have to kind of do to fill a 70 hours right like yeah um and there's only so much content you can make in a given time or a given budget, so it's like there's a lot of repeated quests and things like that and repeated mechanics. But yeah, no, I totally agree. Like uh, knowing that a, a Netflix series is this is it, or or knowing that a TV show or whatever is like oh, there's a limited run of eight. I'm like I love it because I know there'll be meaningful choices and meaningful storytelling because it has to end yeah. at some point. So yeah. yeah, exactly. Like it's 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 I, and also I think like knowing that there is a Knowing that there's a limit and knowing that the things that you're doing all matter. Um, mm-hmm. Like, even, you know, even something like, um, you know, going back to the Kojima games, like, you know, I've, I'm playing the the MSX, the, the like, the, the 80s and 90s, I guess 90s, um, Metal Gears. And, like, yeah. they're cool. They, they have, like, an economy of, of scale that's really, really interesting, and it's, it's they're fun. But even those really small games have these items that, like, eh, if you don't want to use them, you don't have to use them. Like, they're just mm-hmm. kind of, like, they're just kind of there. Yeah. And... Knowing that, like, everything you're finding has some sort of meaning within the game, knowing that all the things you're doing, aside from, you know, there's cosmetics and you can have things that are purposefully designed to be sort of, right, like, right, extra. Right. Yeah. But, like, knowing that the stuff in the game really matters is, um, I don't know, there's something compelling about it, uh, like, just from a narrative standpoint, a uh, play standpoint. Yeah, I mean, the cosmetics, I feel like it's more of a self-expression, because it's, like, it's a single-player game, but I feel like, I hope... That when people want to show off their bird on, you know, whatever their media they want to show it, that they're like, oh, this is my costume, right? Or this is the thing I like. And I've always liked that in games where it's like, it's a shared experience, even though it's a single player game, right? So. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, just from a marketing perspective, it's pretty smart. Uh, <laughs> having, people, having people share their gifts of, uh, of their cool birds and stuff. 
I will say I did not I did I was not very familiar with bird memes at all. Like I know it sounds dumb, but like it's not a thing or culture that I was really big into and we we happen to hit on that. Now I have so many bird followers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People that love birds and like want to talk about birds and like okay, the other day there was a article about a a, a falcon breeders that wears uh, falcon sex hats. Oh yeah, I saw and I saw you tweeted. We will not have falcon sex hats. And I had three different people just like, hey, did you see this? I'm like, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's good that you clarified that you're not planning on including them. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's great. Like I, I'm, you know, we're 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 pretty happy where the reception's been so far. I was hoping is like. Oh, they're they're making that Falcon game, and that was my hope. Like two years ago, I was like, I hope there's no other Falcon game, because <laughs> <laughs> again, like as an indie studio, right? Like, what are the things that people are going to remember, or you know, at a glance, uh, as what is the thing that you're working on, or how does it stand out? And again, to the screenshot, or or putting the bird in, or calling it Falcon Age, or whatever. But it's like, yeah, if you want to survive, and you know, like it is a business. Like I want to keep making the games I want to make, but we have to actually. Uh, Hopefully people will buy it. <laughs> that we can keep making stuff. So. People, yeah, no, everyone, go out and buy this game. I'm, I, I will. I think, I think it sounds exciting. I think it's going to be really. I, I had actually. I'll, 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 I'll end with this because I, I want to. I know you have a busy day, so I want to let you go. But yeah. the, uh, yeah. you know, the, um, I had someone in a group chat I'm in, and actually is involved with the podcast. Independently, before I told them you were going to be on. Uh, show me a clip from Falcon Age and be like, this is so cool. Like, I cannot wait to play this oh, game. And I was like, that wow. Makes, that, that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It's, 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 I, I think I, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'll say that much. But, um, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. Uh, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to? Um, no, I mean, this has been, we kind of touched on a lot of things. So it's yeah. cool to talk about uh, history and stuff too. Um, no, it's been fun. We don't have a, a, a release date, but it'll be soon ish. Okay, so cool. Hopefully, we get to announce one soon. I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, uh, sometime this year. So. Okay, sounds good to me. Um, and I will keep an eye out for it. Everyone else should as well. Uh, and um, where where can people find you? Uh, I'm at, at Ekanaut, E K A N A U T, on Twitter. Perfect. Simple, easy. Uh, and yeah, of course, Falcon Age can be found all over the place. It's, I mean, it's it's being released on the PSVR too, so it's not going to be too hard to find and the name is really easy to remember so yeah yep. all right well thanks so much for coming on man thanks for having us it's been really fun yeah go back anytime